Welcome to Where Work Meets Life. I'm Dr. Laura. I am a psychologist, business leader, author, speaker, and advocate. I'm passionate about bringing experts from around the world to you with a variety of topics at the intersection of where work meets life. I'm excited to be doing this podcast to educate, share knowledge, and raise awareness. Thank you for joining me, and I look forward to being here with you today. I am thrilled to be here today uh, talking about Second Chances, an interview about surviving and thriving with Carrie Gladue. Today's topic is about survival and resiliency and how telling a story can help inspire hope and healing in others. Even in the worst of circumstances, I believe as human beings, we all have the ability and the power within us to heal. I had the pleasure of being introduced to Mr. Kerry Gladue a few months ago, and I learned about his book, Second Chances, The Kerry Gladue Story. I couldn't wait to get my hands on this book, a very powerful memoir. And I did, and I read it, and I couldn't put it down. It was very, very impactful and a highly recommended read. Kerry was born in Edmonton, Alberta. He's a second generation residential school survivor, as well as a survivor of childhood sexual abuse. The combination of those two things is so much to endure on any human being. And after those experiences, Carrie went on to have 30 years suffering and struggling with addiction, drug addiction, alcohol addiction. I can't imagine what that was like to have 30 years struggling and then to recover. And over the last nine years, uh, Carrie has been sober. And over the last eight years, he's actually worked helping others treating alcoholism and addiction at the Simon House Recovery Center, the center that actually was the place that helped him recover and heal. Kerry uses his experiences to bring positive hope, change, and healing to other people who are suffering and struggling with addiction, childhood past trauma, sexual abuse in their histories, whatever it may be, Second Chances, the Carrie Glad You story, takes the reader on a mind-bending journey through trauma and addiction, and then more positively through healing and hope. So without further ado, I am thrilled to be here with you today, Carrie. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So it is a Friday. It's a Friday leading up to uh, Christmas, and I'm just um, really happy to be bringing this episode out there to to help other people and inspire hope and learn about your story. So let's start off, and I have a copy of the book here, by the way. Um, and what I must say about this book is it's very personal. You you speak to the reader and you have little um, conversations with the reader throughout it, checking in with how the reader is doing and feeling. And there's also some humor in it, um, which I really like, because I think even in the worst of horrible you know situations and circumstances, if you can find some humor, you know, it just it makes it even more human. And you've done a great job at that, Carrie. Thank you. Yeah, so, it was a. 
So can you share with us what led you to write and put yourself out there with this book? Yeah, sure. I, as you mentioned, you know, with the thir- over 30 years in active addiction, uh, comes a lot of times sitting in jail, a lot of times down and out on your luck, uh, looking for something to grab onto, hope. And I remember my last time in jail was nine and a half years ago. And I noticed everybody was looking around for something in the jail. All the inmates, all the people who are sick and detoxing and suffering and sorry and wish they had another opportunity, a chance, a second chance. And I thought, you know, I was look. I started looking for what they were. I was looking for stories. I was looking for something to lift my spirits up that things are going to be okay. And I never found any, and there wasn't much in there for that, right? And if there was a book or two, it was outdated, and it wasn't the here and now what goes on this day and time with addiction and the kinds of drugs and the different stuff that goes on today. And then I, I put that in the back burner. And then when I myself started uh, healing on my journey, I remembered that about three, four years in. I said, you know, I noticed that I'm sharing my story story now with people and I'm really personal about it and I think one of the things that brought people closer to me was my openness about it because I kept that secret my sexual abuse secret for all my life right and then people started coming up to me and opening up to me and saying hey I've never told anybody this before ever uh this happened to me and then I thought the power of that you know of starting the process so I remembered that and I said well hey how can I get this out to help more people? And I have to be brutally honest. So I got started on that book and I didn't really know where it would go. I just, you know, trusted, trusted, and I went with it. It was hard. It was a hard right. <laughs> yeah. I bet you you had to relive so many of those scenarios and circumstances when you were writing it. And rewriting parts of it, I'm guessing, really brought up a lot of those past memories for you, Carrie. Yes, it it, did. And like you mentioned, the the research part too. I'm going back to the old places where stuff happened to me. I'm revisiting my childhood home where a lot of physical abuse and addiction happened. I'm, I'm like that little boy again, sitting in front of those places, but I'm in a vehicle and I'm in tears and I'm... Uh, you know, it was it was hard. It was a it was a huge investment for me to get this done, right? And I didn't want to be that guy anymore, that, like I was in my addiction. I would start something and say I'm going to do this and do that, and I never ever followed through. I was going to start following through, just like staying sober. I'm going to follow through with this too, and and trust, right? Wow, and I know very well what goes into writing a book and then publishing a book. That that must have been a lot of work and a huge dedication on your part. It, it was, it, and it took me some time. I think it took a, a lot longer due to some situation that happened with my book. Uh, you know, being vulnerable like that and going through the trauma and then trusting people with that story. I had a... I had a woman come into the picture, uh, inspiring me and doing all this stuff I never experienced anymore or in my life ever, I should say. And 
uh, with hopes and dreams, movie productions, just laying it on me. And I'm like, really? You can do that? Oh, yeah, this is me. This is what I do. I own this company. And I'm like, okay, sold me on it. And then later on, I'm finding out that I don't have my book anymore. Uh, all the proceeds of my books are going into her personal bank account. Uh, you know, she's telling people she helped write my book and all kinds of stuff. So that prolonged it a lot and it set me back a long time. Uh, it actually caused almost cost me my marriage as well because of all the the investment in the I had in that. And I was only focused on that book and and trying to get it back from her. And it wasn't just I wasn't just focusing on my story. In my story, it talks about the residential school system and my mom's experience, uh, me being a second generation survivor. Right, my mom was raised in that, and I'm I'm trying to hang on to my mom who's passed away, my sister, my brother. Our stories, my family story, and then I got this woman telling us she owns the story. She's profited on it. And I'm like, what's happening? I sobered up, and I wanted to be like everybody else, good-hearted. And everyone's been telling me, you need to be like this. You need to be like us and have a good life. So I started trusting the one that come along, and she just turned me sideways, right? So I had to rebuild that. I lost some trust. And... Yeah, it was a difficult time for me. And you can tell I get a little bit worked up just talking about because it was hard. It was hard. I, I was crying again. I was like, how could I? I felt so ashamed that that could happen to me. I thought I was smarter than that. Uh, it was just horrible, right? And, you know, I'm, I've, I've learned. Since then, I've, I've taken control of my book again. Like, I didn't even have my print for the public for the printer my master draft nothing she refused to give me anything so there was some compassionate people that started coming forward but i started sharing them and i had to be careful too right uh but everything i everything i'm saying is the truth and and i've got everything to back it up so there's i have no worries there and i'm willing to i'm willing to go out with anyone who wants to hear about it you know i have a linkedin page too that people can visit. It's some really neat and interesting stuff in there if you want to take the time to read it and find out a little bit more about what I'm discussing and see what your thoughts are, right? So how do people find you on LinkedIn, Carrie? Uh, under my name, Carrie Gladue. So I'm so sorry to hear all about this and um, how really you felt taken advantage of that your story was almost stolen from you, which is, you know, a bizarre and really unfortunate situation. And I think you raise a really good point that um, people that take advantage of others um, can come across very well, very professionally, very well connected, all of these things. And, you know, rest assured, Carrie, that I mean, all of us can be conned by these types of people in our lives. They come along and they are convincing. And, you know, even me being a psychologist and thinking I, I can really spot human behavior. I mean, I've been taken advantage of in the past as well. And I think that we all need to be really aware of, of whoever we're dealing with. And I, I think authors, I mean, being an author myself, I get approached probably every week by people saying they can help turn my books into movies, or they can help me make more money on my books. Or if I pay $1,000 here, I can go on an episode of a radio show or and you just don't you're just constantly sucked into this money making world. So I mean, I certainly if I were you wouldn't feel, you know, that you could have done anything 
differently. You were trusting and um, you were taken advantage of, but good for you to get your story back. Thank good you. for you. Um, so you. with other authors that put themselves out there and publish memoirs, which is, are so deeply personal, um, and books in general. So people that put themselves out there, what are the warning signs that they may be taken advantage of? What, what have you learned that you wish you knew before and that you would pass on to other vulnerable people in the community? If it's too good to be true, like the old saying goes, trust that, look into it further. Uh, you know, my first time writing a book and first time in everything you know first time being sober first time in this new world i come from the streets laura i come from prison i come from foster homes that's my upbringing no trust in no one right so when i turned when i made the turn healthy got clean time in i'm i'm, I'm professional now myself working in the field and i'm teaching trust to my clients and and uh forgiveness and all that stuff that go healthy stuff and then it happens to you, right? I, I, I want to touch on something too. When, when it's the re-victimization for a lot of us too, because when it, in my situation, and I, I'll share when I was, I grew up, my first stint in a foster home is when I was seven years old, due to addiction with my mom and, and her boyfriend's physical abuse. Uh, we used to witness my mom beaten all the time and dragged up the stairs and with her hair and us kids in our pajamas, she would huddle us and hide us underneath the basement stairs and just to protect us. Right. And she, she would get beaten up. And then I would have to say I was fighting in the park when I used to get beaten up. So she wouldn't get beaten up for protecting me. It was on and on. So we caught the attention of social services and stuff like that. So I, again, I was, you know, in and out of foster homes as a little kid. You know, I remember my first time waking up in a long in a locked up center at about seven years old, locked with all these little kids. And I still remember that institutional color of green. I still have a problem with today. That's never going to go away. Right. And I, and I peed my pants. I was so scared. I didn't know what was happening. Right. For two days I stayed and I never told nobody and nobody even said any different, no staff or nothing. Right. Just do this, do that. Then again, I was let go home. Right. I was released to home. So, my mom was still with the same guy, you know, growing up in the residential school and doing the research on her made me understand all of this stuff a lot more because mom never talked about it. Two and a half years old, she's taken from her home too. She's placed in residential school in a nursery because she was just young. And then she, she stayed up there all her childhood, you know, and when she got out, she was on the street. They taught them nothing. And when I had to look at her records, my mom had all these records. I had no idea medical records she was doing research for the residential school claim years ago and I, she never talked about it she was show, she still had the, all of that stuff in her right so my brother stopped telling about the book my brother started to hand me stuff i got this bro i got this check this out and i just broke into tears you know the priest taking my mom every weekend in the car and raping her and then dropping her off with a bag of candy and my mom in tears every weekend she went through this a little girl right and then when I write, write in my book, it's I, I, if you notice, Laura, I touch on so many things in there, right? Justice, residential schools, I combine them all because it's all part of somebody's, like me and my upbringing, right? And I touch on, on, on that part because 
for my mom, she didn't have a chance. She's let go from there when they, you know, the last residential school closed in 1996 only in Canada. That's not long ago, right? And my, it's not. And my mom was on the streets after that. So there's my mom. She's having, she's, now she's having a baby. She had one son. She was uh, impregnated by a new recruit RCMP officer who left her when he impregnated her. And she stuck with this baby. He went up for adoption. I've never, you know, I've tried to contact, make contact with this person. I wish I could, right? We've never heard of him all our life. We know his name. Uh, and then she had us. And then, you know, then finding out that my mom had to work the streets to, you know, prostitute herself to put food on the table for us. All they taught them was to clean and sew in there. That's it. They didn't teach them anything. Very low grade level just to get by, just to say they're doing something, I think, right? I had to, uh, it, doing the research with the book had brought up so much stuff. And when her medical reports, when she left that residential school, she got shock treatment. She was placed in Pinocchio Mental Health Institute. And her notes I read is, this little girl, is a, she was uh, 13 years old. She's fear of men and adults, and she appears all alone in this world. There's no parents or nothing. You know, and I just oh, broke down crying. So heartbreaking. Oh, yeah. And man, then I remember. So then sorry. I know, then I remember how she says, when she passed away in our living room in 2011, says, "I'm not dying in the hospital. I'm not going in institution. I'm staying here with my family." And December 27th, she made it two days after Christmas, right? So, oh. you know, but it was hard, right? And then to have this woman come there and say, "I own that story. I'm going to profit off of that story." I helped write it, you know, and stuff. It's just, you have to be careful, right? And, you know, I, I'm so passionate about that, you know, when it comes to that stuff. And and my story was never about making money. I donate a portion of each book sales to a treatment center called Alcove Recovery Center for Women and Children. And I donate one to Simon House. They're not for profit. They don't get money from anybody. They, they survive on donations just to get by to help people. And I remember with the mom and the children, my mom could have used that. So I'm passionate about that. And then the treatment center where I grew up, I like to say, because I went in there 41 years old, and that's where I grew up. People say, you say, where'd you grow up? All oh, the streets, Edmonton. Now I say I grew up at Simon House because it's true. <laughs> wow. What a powerful place that is. It, it has such a spirit, right? And such a healing power. Thanks to counselors like you addictions counselors healing and recovery counselors amazing amazing work carrie thank you we have um, a great team over there i bet you have a great team and they're lucky to have you and i would just go on to say about again when you you have a book inside of you or you've already written a draft just be very very careful because there's an ecosystem of of people and there's what we call vanity publishers they want to charge a lot of money here's your book and then they don't do anything for you and it costs you a lot um, and there's different ways to publish traditionally self-publish etc but there's all kinds of people that'll claim they can help you for the right price um, including editors um, that maybe aren't experienced editors so we, we just have to be very careful my advice is always talk to the writing community um, when words collide is the big writing conference every August in Calgary um, I have lots of connections in the writing community you know reach out in the writing community is strong and vibrant you know everywhere not just here but everywhere there's writing communities that can help you sort out the truth 
from the cons. Yeah. That's definitely worth looking into. <laughs> right? Um, yeah. And I think that um, if we want to buy your, your book, Carrie, how do we buy it f- from you? Is it on Amazon? Where do I find it? Uh, right now, you can go. I'm on, I got a Facebook page that's doing very well. Uh, it's called Second Chances Carrie Gladue. And there's a shop button on there where it'll pull you through nice and smoothly through the questions. And uh, your book gets shipped out usually the same day they, they get set up. And then, and then there's signed copies too. I like to sign them and put a little inspirational thing in there for people too. Oh, that's wonderful. And I have a signed copy here that you signed for me. And I love how there's pictures in it throughout. I mean, starting with a picture of, of your mom there. Oh, I'm not holding it up right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, I'm just moving it around the camera. But there's pictures at every step of the way of, of your mother, of you, of you as a, a young um, kid, you as a you know troubled teenager. I mean, one of my favorite stories was the mall break in just the way you told it was humorous the jewelry store but I it was you know nothing short of (laughs) amazing like that you survived all of this and survived all those times in jail and then came out as such an inspiring human being right that's just amazing I I wanted to make I wanted to make that story to you know to that's why you notice the little writing things in there like I wanted to make it I'm with the reader Thank you for being there with me. I'm here with you. I know you're going through some stuff. Maybe it might bring some stuff up to you. I get it. And let's talk through it here. There's a little spot where you talk, take a breather, think about things a bit. And uh, But I really wanted that connection in the book. I wanted something different. And uh, actually, I'm getting a lot of, a lot of uh, feedback on that alone. It's just that thank you for that. I, you know, I really felt that you were there with me when I was reading your story. And that's exactly what I wanted, right? Yeah, and addiction is is such a long and winding road and you know so many people just can't get through it including one of my childhood best friends who took her life I think it was 4 years ago now. Um she took her life January 27th, 2017 and um and she had suffered from years and years of addictions and and she was such a bright shining star and such a bright light and it, I just I know from the experience of being her friend and seeing her suffer and struggle and trying to get well. And then she was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis and that was it. Um, she just felt like, oh, I can't, like on top of the addictions and all the healing work and the groups and the AA and everything, she's like, okay, now I'm going to be disabled and this and that. And you know what? I'm just going to do it on my own terms and, and finish this off. And she asked me to do a eulogy for her funeral in her goodbye note. And I did. And she said, I don't want the eulogy to be about MS. I want it to be about addictions and mental health. Aww. And her parents, who, you know, just didn't want any of this getting out, they, they didn't want that. They didn't want that exposed uh, for the family. But we sure did. We, we sure exposed, you know, the topic and her AA sisters spoke as well. And I think we just need to be open about the fact that there's a lot of people suffering from addiction, and they may not just be people uh, who don't have money or on the streets or whatever. It can be all all types of society, including a surgeon or whoever, right? Like, right? Yeah, I see it all the time. I see it all the time. It doesn't matter where you come from. I, I, I tell I tell some, some clients and I said, because I'm the intake coordinator too, right? 
I bring guys into treatment. I tell them, it doesn't matter if you come from under that bridge over there or Beverly Hills. It's going to take you out. And, and if it hasn't yet, it's going to, right? You may be functioning. You may be able to do all this stuff, but it's going to come to an end. It's just going to come to an end really hard if you've been doing it this long, right? The reality of it. Yeah, it, it absolutely would. So what characteristics about you, Carrie, do you think helped you not only survive the unbelievable traumas, but also to thrive? Because you seem to be thriving in life. Like, I'm, I'm really um, proud of all you've done. So what characteristics do you think led you to where you are today? Uh, I think I've always been a fighter. And no matter how bad it got, I always... Like, hung on to like 10% of me so I can have something to grab back onto when I'm ready. Just a little bit. So I got like an anchor or a rope. There's a little rope hanging there, 10% of me, what I got left where I didn't ruin to get back on. And I always kind of done that, right? Uh, this last time where I was looking at 11-year prison sentence, I'm a recovering crystal meth addict and and I was told, you know, by a lot of people, there's a very low survival rate of coming out of that alive. And I'm like, oh, really? You know, so that was a challenge for me as well, right? I wanted to see if I can be, uh, I can survive it. Not only survive it, maybe get some other people out of it too, right? Do my best to to instigate or, or promote healing. Because there's so many people that come, come by. I go to... Uh, uh, jails and prisons now and i go inside on the units pre-covid of course and i go in there and i've walked into some of these things there's 30 40 inmates and i'm walking in there with my normal clothes now i can come and go and some of them are looking at me you look familiar and i'll say hey and i'll tell their name hey eh? they'll say carrie you're kidding right and then i'll tell them what happened to me where what it came around and what it's on this side it's not that bad and here's a way to do it this is what i did if you open up to that it, it does work if you give it all you know i don't believe in hanging on to a part of my old life because i believe that's just a little nest i'm keeping warm until i if i ever want to go back i have to get rid of everything you know i have to do a lot of cleanup stuff and it takes time it doesn't happen overnight but it does happen right so it seems like you've persisted, you've taken supports, you have um, an amazing spirit and a belief system um, and an amazing community. Uh, and one, one thing that inspired me in your book was the judge. So the judge that, you know, spearheaded a program to help you deal with your addiction um, and, and actually recover so that you wouldn't continue being in and out of jail. So tell us a little bit about that. This Judge Ogle, he's uh, with Calgary Drug Treatment. I think he's retired now or he's semi-retired. It was a whole different experience. So here's me going in the courtrooms all my life, you know, and there's a judge there that actually took the time to listen to me, talk to me. He's like a father figure to the whole, all of us in the courtroom, all us drug court participants. And he would be, you can tell he was invested and he had his heart in it. He could be doing anything else, but he decided to do this. He's seen a different way out. You know, he used all his experience, not just to pass paper, but, hey, this is what I'm going to use my experience for, and I'm going to help these people make a difference. And, you know, my story is just, just one of many, right? There's so many people that's recovered through this program. That's drug court. 
you know, and I see there's a lot more light on that now and there's a lot of more programs starting up. We should have did this years ago and I know a lot of people tried to get it going, but now they're seeing that it's for this kind of lifestyle, crimes, you know, involving drugs or to feed your drug habit. Uh, it's a way out. You know, I, I ended up working for them for two and a half years after. So it was a really good experience, right? Wow. That's amazing. And I think people like Judge Ogle are just beautiful human beings, right? So when we think of, you know, predators and people that take advantage and cons and whatever you want to call them, I would say there's, you know, equally as many, hopefully more, uh, depends on your perspective, but I believe more people that have pure hearts and have great intentions. And would you agree with that, Carrie? Like, are you feeling like more optimistic or more skeptical given what happened to you? No, as far as that program in that, I'm, I'm really optimistic. Like, it, it wasn't just a judge in there, too. It's a team. And, uh, you know, I got a, there's a crown prosecutor, a federal prosecutor. You got a lawyer. You got the judge. You got the a Calgary police member. All these are a team in the drug court team, a social worker. Like, you know, my story about the social, I didn't really get into that. And I'll mention that a little bit later. Uh, so they're all together. And so I'm building trust again. When I graduated from the program, a judge came down from the bench, walked up, put a thing around my neck and said, this is the key back to the community for trust. Your trust back, a fresh start. And he gave me a hug. What judge does that? They didn't give me a hug before they slammed the door and threw you in jail. <laughs> it's a whole different, right? And I made friends with these people after, right? I trusted them and, and it's a whole different thing, right? So things are better. You know? My whole perception growing up was all wrong. You know, if I, if I was healthy enough to, and in the right place, but all the stuff that I mentioned in my addiction, I was only trying to survive. And most of us are just to survive. You're not thinking about all these things later when you're just trying to feel better and, and survive and find shelter and get food in you and take something to, to get rid of the pain and the hurt. And that's all you think about. And, and I think we're all on a quest to, you know, self-actualize and find meaning and purpose and all yeah. these things. But when you're going through an addiction, I, I just don't think your brain can get to that point until you no. rid yourself of the addiction, right? Right. So my next question is, I mean, we're all going through this COVID-19, you know, crazy pandemic year. And I always like to, you know, ask my podcast guests the question how has the pandemic been an opportunity to evolve our lives would you say from your perspective i would think it has brought uh, a new meaning to family to the things that really matter in our life because i think we've all lost over the years you know what the important things were right now we're in shutdown people no, we need to, we want to be with our families and all that. Before it was just like, ah, if I make it on, I won't be making it today. Happens all the time, right? I just can't get to this one. Maybe next year I'll, I'll see you then, right? But it's brought a whole new meaning and closeness to families and the want and willingness to get together that who never knows it could be your last time. And we're seeing so many, so many tragedies right now too, with people passing away from this and, and, oh, my heart just breaks for that. Just knowing that, you know, if it could take a little while longer with the vaccine, who knows what would happen, right? This can be saved. Uh, yeah. And I think it, 
Yeah, it's easy to think, well, it's just people in their 80s and 90s. But I mean, those people are still like mothers and fathers yeah. and grandmothers. And it's just to be like dying alone in a hospital bed. Uh, it's just really, really sad. Yeah. And, and, you know, they say the greatest gift is to be take to take care of your parents in the end. And people with this ain't allowed to do that. They can't even be around them. You know, and, you know, after that, all the love that parent is that that elderly person has given their family members all their life. Say if my mom was alive, all she went through so I can survive. And that, in the end, I couldn't be there for you. That would be hard. And I'm Wouldn't just that be heartbreaking? Family. Yeah, so my heart goes out to to those people, especially the ones that are alone. But you raise a good point in that the silver lining, I agree, has been bringing a lot of families closer together and making us realize what's important in our lives. Yes. Because our lives have been simplified, right? Because we can't do a lot of the things that we used to do. I mean, I myself used to travel a fair bit for work and haven't been, obviously. And But, you know, do I really miss it? Do I miss as much travel? No, I kind of like the routine of, you know, hanging out with my kids more and not being exhausted at airports. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So um, I talk a lot about work-life wellness. So there's this concept of work-life balance, but I like to use the word work-life wellness. It's being well in your life, being well in your life itself, your personal life, your work, all the spheres of your life, all the spheres of your life, you're well. Um, what has been your greatest challenge with that? Um, I'd say in the last while or the last number of years, maybe post addiction, Carrie, that your greatest challenge with work life wellness and how you've overcome that challenge? Uh, when it, well, that's a good question. When I'm into something now, I'm all in. And then some, right? I push, I push myself, I push myself, and I tend to lose, uh, you know, what the really important things, you know, family, spending time, putting work aside. And I work in a very, in a profession where people are dying, right? People are dying all the time, and as the intake coordinator, I have to make decisions right away. Okay, I need to get this guy. There's so much things to do. It's time sensitive, and it just can't be put off during nine to five right so i'm on call all the time but you know i i look after that and my wife shannon is pretty good about that right and she, and she works in the same kind of profession as well so she understands uh we like to go for you know drives you know stuff like that uh as i mentioned earlier my daughter three-year-old daughter gracie likes french fry friday friday that is so like cute <laughs> i'll be hearing about that after daycare french fry friday uh you know and with the COVID and stuff too, I think that's, it's brought out more that we need to do more of that. I need to be able to find more time. I, I'm guilty too. I'm, I'm just a work, workaholic too, right? And, and that takes a lot to admit, right? But I think admitting it is, is the first step because I, I do think work can become a sort of addiction or obsession for, and a lot of people are struggling with that in our world today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, yeah, so, I mean, given that you know a lot about addictions, you know, with alcohol and drugs, what would you say would be your advice around work addictions? Like, how are they same or different? I don't think they are. 
I don't think there's much different at all. No, addiction is an addiction. It doesn't matter if it's a, a substance or an activity or, you know, or a cell phone or anything like that, right? It's still an addiction. You know, I lost my cell phone one time and, and I had to laugh after because I was traumatized. I was like, what? That's, that's my lifeline. <laughs> Everything's on there, right? And sometimes I have to be, uh, I, get to, I get this little once in a while. Uh, put the cell phone down. It's kind of like it's dinner time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it's realizing our patterns and then figuring out ways to break those patterns, right? Yes. Yes. And boundaries between work and non-work life, which when you're on call and stuff, it's a little trickier, but perhaps you can make up that time in other ways with some flexibility. Do you have flexibility in what you do? Yeah, I do. I do. Yeah. My, my work's pretty good with that. You know, like right now I'm working from home, which is, which is good. I can do that if I'm able to, uh, uh, we get extra time, mental health time runoff and stuff like that to take care of things and take care of us. So I really like that. It's, it's good work in that kind of field too. They understand that, you know, my work so that we need that. Cause you really get burnt out. You got like 44 guys that are, are new in treatment and they're going through their, their initial life struggles with adapting, right? Adapting to anything, you know, structure, routine. You know, it all starts, it's not just stopping drinking drugs. It's the structure that's got to come with that, right? Because you've got the same person that just doesn't drink and do drugs for a little while, that's all. So it starts up again. Yeah, I bet that's a huge learning curve and a huge adjustment. Wow. I can't imagine, but I have a lot of respect for what you do. So let's ask you about, um, this is an interesting question I ask all my guests. If you didn't have to sleep, so if you could buy back that extra, let's just say eight hours out of every day, what else would you do with that eight hours, Carrie? I would make up for some lost time, 30 years of active addiction and focus on more things that I'm learning now, like family, uh, goals, helping people, you know, getting things done. You know, I just turned 50 here in August and I, you know, I still feel younger than we normally do. I'm here. I talk to other guys my age and we joke around and I feel like 20 and I'm 30, you know, but uh, you don't get that time back. Right. You don't, but I, w- I would try to do my best, add more education, uh, uh, following my dreams. Would be nice. Yeah, I like that because I never did that before. I got a, I got a vision here. I'm going to share it. Okay. This, this going to fill in one day too. Oh, wow. So what do you envision? Do you envision a documentary about your life or a, a feature film or what? I think a feature film. I've had, I've had. I got a large, a pretty large following now, and people are reading my book. And there's, this needs to be, you know, one the other day, and I wish I would have saved it. Said, you need to, you need to make this into a movie so it can help, help people. And uh, I'm going to treasure this book, and I've already been showing it to people. And you know, I'm getting people are ordering from people that read it and left it and right. Like it's doing really well, and and you know, people are messaging me and talking to me about personal stuff and. And, you know, it's, it's good. It's good. It's good for me and it's good for them because I understand. And uh, they took the time to read my book and I, and I want to take the time to, 
to see if I can talk to them about stuff that's on their mind that they otherwise wouldn't want to talk to anybody about. And that I'm safe to do it. Yeah. Amazing. What an inspiration you are. And just opening yourself up to people reaching out. And I mean, you truly have a pure heart in all of this. You're not out to make a quick buck. Um, and books aren't really the way to do that, by the way. <laughs> I mean, I've learned know. myself. But yeah. you're out to inspire, influence, and film can be a way of doing that. And I very much hope that that'll come true for you. Because um, you do have an amazing story and very lots of uh, twists and turns in the story. And some drama and like all these like anecdotes that you told about growing up. I, I just think it would make a beautiful uh, film. So I Thank hope you. that lots of people get their hands on your book who watch this podcast as well. Um, do you have another book in you, Carrie? I'm, uh, I'm thinking about a few things. I'm thinking about a few things uh, when things settle down right now with the book because it's still like I said I just got it going again the past three four months and it's picking up and so it's putting me into different areas so I want to stay with that and not overwhelm myself because I used to do that all the time yeah yeah, yeah. right just uh, focus on that and uh, my wife's been helping me now she's doing really good she's got some great ideas that too so we're going to work together on this and then uh, yeah I got some good stuff I'll be letting you know for sure what about keynote speeches? So doing speeches about your story, is that happening or will be yeah. happening? Yeah, I'm, I'm available for that. I've started doing that. I've got a few scheduled coming up here uh, for Satina Police in January 25th. I'm doing keynote for them. Uh, yeah, when they come up, you know, I, I don't like to say no because you never know, right? If it's going right, to touch the right person, right? You never know. And the program I'm in, too, we talk about that. You know, when you share, you just never know what you're going to share that's going to help that person in the back room that's struggling, right? So You just never know. Um, you're absolutely right. And I think the Indigenous community, I, I mean, I feel just horrible about what happened with residential schools and being born in Calgary in 1975 and knowing, you know, here I am in school in Calgary and I had a loving home and whatnot. And just knowing what was going on in these residential schools, it really bothers me. It's just really, really sick. And um, I'm just really sorry that that happened to your mom and that then you ended up having struggles because of it. But now you've broken the cycle. So, you know, tell me about your daughter um, and how you are as a father, you know, knowing what you don't want to put her through. <laughs> well, I'm able to catch myself on things right away. I, you know, she's not around two parents that do alcohol or drugs, that chaos. She's not left here, or left there at different people's homes uh, or with babysitters. We're very protective about her. She attends daycare school, her work, she calls it, my work. She tends that every day, and we have a good routine with her. You know, we do all the stuff that opposite of what happened with, with me growing up, right? And uh, she's very happy. Like uh, the other day, she she says, I want hug. She's three. She's turned three. I want hug. And she grabbed me and her mom, both of us. You know, and she just grabbed, just, she just squeezed us, and, you know, it was just the warmest thing. And that's love. That's family. That's what I want. That's her, her generation coming up, her cycle will be different, right? 
Absolutely. And that's that breaking of that that cycle, that intergenerational trauma. Um, and I think a lot of people struggle from it, whether it's the residential school situation of the Indigenous peoples or whether it's um, trauma that you've had in your own family of um, sexual abuse or physical abuse or whatever it may be. And I think a lot of families have gone through things and some of them are just really good at hiding it and covering it up. <laughs> Would you agree? Yeah. Oh, yeah, I agree totally. I agree totally. So... You know, the, which leads me to my final question here. If you could have one wish for a better world when it comes to our work and lives as, as human beings, what would it be? I would say continue to work hard on accepting each other's differences. Have more compassion. Stand up for what is right. Stand up for the person that seems alone there that's fighting a true fight stand with them so they're not alone and and i think and that's just part of the reconciliation part of life part of loving part of being a human being is all stick together you know and support each other i heard i heard this saying i always like to say when i'm when i'm i'm doing these is it's not my saying but gossip dies when it hits a wise person's ears right Nice. You know what I mean? God's to die. So it's just like telephone tag when I used to facilitate group and, and we'd have to get clients to stop telling war stories because they talk about their addiction life on the street and it gets them all worked up. So we kibosh them. Down. Nobody likes that. No treatment centers do that. It's not healthy. So then I would say, I would play telephone tag. I'd write down, there's 30 clients around the desk and I'd write down something. I'd tell the first guy. And I'd say, pass it down the line, and when it comes back, it's a whole different story. But yet those stories take people out. Those stories kill people. Those stories cause people to hurt, to relapse. Uh, Let's build each other up now. Let's do something different for everybody, not just the reconciliation, for all of us. Let's work on being a better human being because we all went through something and we're going through something together right now. And we've all learned. We had a reality check, so... Let's uh, let's use that and let's not forget. Exactly. That was so well put. I just, I think the world of you and do you have any final things you want to say to uh, the listeners about your book? Uh, yeah. Reaching yeah, out like, to you. Yeah. yeah, I can be reached for my email, carrygladyou at gmail.com. Uh, my Facebook, like I said, Second Chance is Carrie Gladyou. Uh, yeah, reach out if you chat or anything like that. You have any questions, I'm available. I'll make time for you. And uh, stay safe. Stay safe. And, and, Lord, thank you for your show. Thank you for all you do. And thanks for the friendship. And you just never know. <laughs> you just never know who you'll meet in, in life. But I'm certainly glad that we are now connected. And I'll do everything in my power to spread the word about your amazing book, Um And I think you're a very inspiring human being. So thank you for doing what you do, Carrie Gladue. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us today. If you found this content useful, please share with others who may benefit and engage with us on social media. In the podcast summary, you'll find links to my psychology practices, Work Evolution, Canada Career Counseling, and Synthesis Psychology for more detailed information, articles, and tips. I hope you have a wonderful, healthy day, and thank you for joining us.